Turn to 1 Samuel tonight, if you would. We all like stories of, I think the right term is reversal of fortune. Um, reversal of fortune, where people are low and are brought up high, and the people that are high, sometimes evil and wicked, are brought down low. Um, uh, we have stories like Disney's pretty good at doing this, where the Snow White and the witch is kind of brought down, Snow White in the end is elevated, Beauty and the Beast, Prince and the Pauper, Lions, you know, Lion King has a little bit of that in it. There's a lot of reversal stories in Cinderella and things of that nature. So there's that's a very, very favorite line. In fact, it's not just something Disney puts out, but way before Disney, the Bible has a ton of of reversal stories. Can you tell me one? What's one of the Bible reversal stories? And there's a, a bunch of them. I wrote down a ton, but I'm sure I'm missing some too. But what are some stories where, you know, rich became poor, poor became rich, or bad, be, you know, was demoted, but the good were exalted? Reversals of fortune in the Bible. What would you say? What comes to mind? Yes, Sandy. Okay, Judah and Joseph, he was supposed to be the godly one, and he, you know, he is immoral. Joseph has horrible circumstances in comparison, but remains pure, and one is brought down, one is exalted, and it's a good story, very good. Another one, what else? Tim? Haman and Mordecai, maybe a classic, right? I mean, that's one of the ones where he gets hanged on his own, go- hanged, is that right, hanged, hanged, is anybody right about that, sir? Right. All right, on his own gallows. I mean, that is ironic. That is pretty amazing. Tim? Adam and Jesus, Jesus, right? The first Adam and the second Adam. You can see the up and down of sin and sinless and much more than that, right? Come on, there's more. What else? Mike? Rich man and Lazarus. The guy that you expect to wake up in Lazarus, you know, Abraham's bosom doesn't. And the other guy is completely different after their life is over. Yes. What else? How about Daniel? Daniel and his accusers. What happens to them? They accuse him and he's innocent. The lions don't touch him. They're guilty. And what happens to them? I mean, they don't even survive the rope being let down to the ground. You know, that's another great story. Did I miss somebody? You were pointing. Somebody was telling me. Yes. You just forgot because I put you on the spot. Go ahead. Ruth. Ruth is a great one, right? Naomi goes out empty and eventually is full in Ruth as well. Fantastic. Yes. Gachins. Say it again. Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. He is very high and he's brought as low as like an animal, right? And obviously Daniel and his three friends were exalted. Ray? Okay, yeah, in the book of prophecy and revelation about the Antichrist has all this power, but he's eventually going to be vanquished and brought to the lake of fire. Israel, martyred, persecuted, but they're exalted to having thrones in heaven. Good example. I didn't think about that one. Yes. Joseph, yep. We said Joseph, yep. But just in and of himself, he was brought low and then exalted as high as you possibly can. That's a reversal of fortune. Yes, Doreen. Barak. Barak. And he, just, he didn't want to do what he was supposed to, and she said, because of 
Yes. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Someone else. Jesus Christ. Christ. I mean, I was waiting for that one. I was hoping that someone would get that one in there, right? (laughs) Esther and Mordecai. Did we say that already? No? We did? Haman and Mordecai. Yes. Yep. Sorry. David and Goliath. Yes. That's definitely a reversal. Fander? Egypt and Israel, yes. Slavery, the whole, the whole plague and all that story. Yes, Alicia. Yes, he went from Pharisee to the Pharisees down to the beaten up apostle, but God exalted. That was a, a double whammy there. Yes. Rich man and Lazarus. Rich man and Lazarus. Yes, thank you. That was, I think that was my last check off. Jonah and the Ninevites is a radical reversal. We love those stories. Now, this is how the book of 1 Samuel starts out. And as you saw on the Bible Project video, I call it a, Hannah's story is a hermeneutical foundation. And that sounds all crazy, but hermeneutical, meaning if you get Hannah's story, and why why is, with all the other big name stories, David and Goliath, David and Saul, you got all these other big name stories. Why is Hannah's story, and you don't realize in a patriarchal society, they don't usually tell women's stories as much, but Hannah is the first story in the whole book of 1 Samuel. Kind of like the Ruth story and the Esther story. Why is that one put in there? Because she is the hermeneutical. In other words, if you get the point of her story, she in a small way is going to be how you're going to read all the other stories that become, have greater climaxes all the way up to the story, which has the same principle in it, when David becomes king. And if you were watching carefully, I know you weren't looking for it tonight, but they have these stories. This has a lot in common. Here it is. is the proud are made humble and the humble are exalted. That is one of the most important principles that you're going to learn in the book of 1 Samuel. And you see it and microscopic or microcosm, micro picture of it in Hannah's life. She has, she is the, the wife that cannot have children. She is barren. Peninnah, whose name is, means fruitful, has all kinds of children, but she is loved. But every year by year, she comes and she can't have children. And finally, God hears her prayer and he exalts her up and especially exalts her through the exaltation of her own son, Samuel, who becomes the great prophet during that time. If you look in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're not going to go through it verse by verse, although it's worthy of it. The first 10 verses is Hannah's song. Now what's interesting, and they didn't go through the second Samuel part of it on the video, but first and second Samuel, as he said, it's a good point to remember, there was no first and second Samuel when it was written. There was Samuel. <laughs> We've broken it up into two pieces, make it easier for us to grasp, but there was no two Samuel's one. And so the whole thing begins with a song, Hannah's song, when God breaks into her life and she is so humble and God exalts her by giving her a son finally and a boy in particular. And so God brings her up and elevates her and she tells the song. And in that song, uh, and then at the end of 2 Samuel, or what we would say normally the book of Samuel, it ends in 2 Samuel 22 with David's song, which is what she's going to point to. She's the little picture of humility, exaltation, and pride being brought down low. David says, as he looked back at his life, 
that that's exactly what God did with him. And he becomes the line of the Messiah. But in her little song in, hand, in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, it, it says in first verses 1 through 3, it talks about her personal reversal. And then she goes a little wider in verses 4 through 8, and it talks about the nation's reversal and how God's going to change Israel in this way if they'll humble themselves. And then he talks about, in the last couple of verses in 8 through 10, he talks about cosmic reversal, about how God someday is going to take all of his enemies and he's going to bring them low and he's going to exalt his people. And so God, on every level, personal, national, cosmic, he's going to, reversal is a part of all that God does. And by the way, beyond First and Second Samuel, and you've mentioned so many tonight, I hope that this helps you understand that this is what God is about in redemptive history. Really from the beginning, uh, and we have Adam as one of the things we said, all the way to Jesus and Apostle Paul. I mean, the Bible is littered literally on the landscape of the redemptive story is filled with reversal stories because it is one of the main ways that God works. Can I, I hope tonight when you hear that, that doesn't just go by you and say, okay, what's next? God does that. He does that with his people. So when God humbles you and you're brought low, can you recognize and recognize in your prayer life and the way that you respond to circumstances? See, God is the God who takes humble people and exalts them. Isn't those Jesus' words? Not just reversal stories in the Bible. There's reversal statements, right? He who exalts himself should be made low. But if you, you know what? But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said all kinds, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. I mean, not only reversal stories, but reversal statements in the Bible because God wants to get this understanding of this theme really embedded in our heart that he can take, no matter how humble and lowly your circumstances and difficult they are, he can reverse them. That's what God does. Now, I want to point out four tonight, but we're only going to do one because this is a four-week series, all right? So here's, remember what I said, Hannah is the hermeneutical foundation. She is the prototype of God taking the proud and humbling them and taking the humble and exalting them. Okay, I'm going to give you four stories and I'm going to show you how to look at each one. And I actually want you to, if you take the time, I'm going to give you all four of them and give you the three pieces. I want you to look on each one of them and you can actually go a little, do a little homework and do a little ahead of time. So when you come next week, you'll be really familiar with Dagon or he, I know he pronounced it a little bit differently, but you'll be able to see the next story and even thought about some things that you might want to have applied to your life. But let me give them to you. There are four major, there are implicit ones that are smaller, but these are the four major stories in 1 Samuel that are reversal stories, right, that take their cues from Hannah's story and how God works in people's lives who fit into his story, redemptive story, through humility. Here's the first one, Eli. That's the one that we're going to look at tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 2 through 4. Okay? The three things that you look for in each one of them, before I give the other three, are these three items. Number one, physical description of the person who is proud. Okay? Second thing you're going to look for is how that proud person falls. And the key word in everyone is fall or fall on your face. Okay? That's the key phrase. The third, and it's always a sign of divine judgment because of their wickedness or sin. Thirdly, you're going to look for the subsequent exaltation of the humble person in the story. So there's going to be a proud person 
that God, who is described as big and tall and mighty or something like that. The second thing is they're going to have a fall in the passage, right? Because God's going to judge them because of sin and wickedness. And then the third thing you're going to see that's true in all these stories is that the other person, the main character, is going to be subsequently exalted because of their humility. God's going to honor them, all right? So our text tonight is Eli. The second one is the god Dagon, and the main verses are 1 Samuel 5, 3 and 4. The third story, and I'm going to give it to you, and it's going to probably surprise you. It's going to give you a new light and perspective on this story you think you're so familiar with, and that's David and Goliath. And that's 1 Samuel 17 in particular. Our word fall is in verse 49. And the last one is going to be uh, Saul and David climaxing in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. So we cover the whole survey of the book. Chapter 31 in verse 4 talks about Saul's fall. All right. Now it's crucial just to give you a little bit of information as you're studying on your own and preparing to come each week on Wednesday night. That there are a lot of people who fall or sometimes fall on their face in First and Second Samuel. Not everyone who falls or falls on their face is wicked. In fact, sometimes David, it says in First Samuel 20 and verse 41, he falls on his face and he falls in humility. So that's a good thing. Second Samuel has a number of Mephibosheth falls before David to beg for mercy. Joab falls before David. So there's a number of people three times in 2 Samuel. But here's the catch. Ready? No one falls on their face and dies unless they're very sinful or wicked. People fall on their face for other reasons. And usually they're good people, not always, but there's other reasons. But when you fall or you fall on your face in 1 Samuel and you die, it's because you are being judged on some level by God. And so when you see that, I don't think it's a coincidence that when we look at these four stories and these people who fall, in fact, I took the story that you can see how the mighty have fallen. That's exactly what 2 Samuel 1.19, David says that of Jonathan and his dad when he, he knows that they're dead in the battle. He says, how have the mighty fallen? That's where I took this from. But when you see that, you're going to learn some valuable principles about how important humility is and how dangerous pride could be. All right? So in the last 15 minutes, let's look at Eli. And we're going to have to cruise pretty fast here. Eli, and I'm only going to give you two episodes that, that really characterize or frame his life. The first one we find in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel in verse 9. After they had eaten and drank and slightly hand arose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And if you went over to chapter 4 and verse 13, at the end of his life, you'll see a man in Benjamin 4.12 ran from the battle line, came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. He arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road. So these two bookends of Eli's life kind of frame out who he is. And at each time he's sitting on a chair or a seat or often sometimes the word is used to describe a throne. Do you remember when Lot was in Sodom and he sat in the gate? When you sat on a chair in the gate, where that's where the chapter 1 verse 9 says, or you sit in a chair, it's by the road, it was the very place by the temple or the tab at that time, the temple in Shiloh, where people would come to worship and 
Eli is not only a priest, but he has become a judge. In fact, it says he judged at the end of his life Israel for 40 years. And so he sits there on his chair, not just because he's resting and he's older and having a rough day, so he's taking a little relaxation. No, when you sit in the chair on the throne, he is judging people's lives. Uh, He is judging their situations. He is setting justice out. He is doing court cases. He is making decisions for people and the difficulties that they face. And so he has that kind of authority. Here's the thing. What you find out about him is that at least toward the end of his life that he didn't do a very good job of being a judge because there's this inconsistency in his life. He comes in chapter one, he's sitting there and he sees Hannah come to the temple and she is so burdened and so overwrought and overwhelmed by the fact that she's barren and can't have a child that she's praying and she's praying with such passion and intensity, First Samuel 1 says, that to Eli looking at her, he comes to the conclusion this woman must have come to the temple and just be, she's drunk. And, he, and, and she says to him in chapter one, verse 16, underline it, don't think of me as a worthless woman. It means of no value, and, and, and it's a person who lacks complete integrity and character completely. Now, he thought that's what she was. Now, the ironic thing is that that same verb is used in chapter 2 and verse 12. So put a little marker there. And the Bible says that he had two sons. And his two sons, the Bible says, same word, were worthless men. Same Hebrew word. And it says, and they did not know the Lord. Now they were priests, get this, priests in the temple helping their dad, who was the priest and the judge. But it wasn't Hannah that was worthless, although he thought she was. It was them. They were the ones that were worthless. And what were they doing that made them worthless? They were in the temple, and I'll try not to make this too long. They were taking the, the sacrifices that people brought, and a portion of it was set aside, and that's how the priests lived. They would get the meat that would come from it and some of the sacrifices, but there was a certain way you had to do it and a certain kind of food that you got and only such amount. But they were taking it, if you read the rest of the chapter, in chapter 2, they were taking as much as they wanted. They were taking more than their share. In fact, what it ends up being, they were taking more than their share. That meant they were stealing from people and they were also stealing from God because they were taking the meat that was only reserved for God. Read it in Leviticus for yourself. Leviticus says that certain things were only for God and you had to prepare them a certain way. They put all that aside. They took what they wanted and they said to people that you need to give us this meat. And if they refused, here's what they would say, that we'll take it by force. We'll just take your stuff. This is the kind of guys that they were. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, when you fool around with God's ceremonial laws about how you come into his presence and worship it, you know more than once people have been struck down as dead, right? So this is no small, trivial thing in God's eyes. But it's not only that, but later on when God has a man of God come to him and says, you know that your sons are wicked. In fact, they're having sexual relationships with women who come to the temple for, for ministry. So you got two sons that are doing the Levitical Levitically, they are heretical, and morally, they are corrupt. And here, these are the guys. So, so it's astounding, isn't it, that he thinks Hannah is worthless, but really it's his own sons that are worthless. Chapter 2, let's look at that real quickly. Can you look at that chapter? And this is where I want to park a little bit. 
Chapter 2, 1 Samuel, I'm in Ruth, that doesn't help. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord. Now watch. Two did I phrases, because here's the way he's going to come to him, God through the man of God says. Eli, you had privileges. He says, did I indeed, he says, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? In other words, before you ever came here, didn't I choose you? And you're on the line that you could, see, here's God, I chose your family. Do you know how few families get to be chosen to be priests, to work in the temple, to come to the altar, to do the sacrifices? It's not just anybody that can do that. That's a privilege I gave you. Because of who I made you to be, who I chose you to be, and the place I put you for ministry, I elevated you. He says, see, I gave you privileges. Then he says another one, verse 28. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go to the altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? Now, this is not just the little white robe that Samuel wore. This is the ephod of the high priest. And if you read Exodus 28 through 30, you'll know that the ephod was a completely beautiful gown or robe. It had gold, purple, blue, scarlet. It, had, it was absolutely magnificent. On his chest, he had a big plate that had the 12 tribes of Israel, each one having a stone. Embedded in that was the umim and the thumim, and we don't know all about it, but you could talk to God and he would give answers through that, and only the high priest could wear that. And he had a crown that said holiness to God on it. I mean, this was a man who had privileges like nobody else. He was in charge. He was ruling. He was putting past judgments on justice. He was the one who got into God's presence. And the altar where his sons were giving sacrifices to God right outside the holy place and the curtain that was right next to God's presence. I mean, here's what God is saying. He's building an argument. He says, listen, I gave you such privileges. We could say it this way, couldn't we? Listen, I, did I not allow you to come to Faith Baptist Church? Don't you live in America God said, didn't I put you here? And I put you here. Did I not give you a good job? Do you not have food in the table? Don't you have a car and a house? Didn't I give you a Bible? Don't you study? Can't you go on the internet? Don't you? And God just kind of builds the argument, doesn't he? Don't you have all these things, God says? And then he would say this, and this is what you do with it? See, Eli, you had privileges. You had privileges, but you didn't use them for my glory. Look at the next verse. Why do you scorn my sacrifices or kick them, literally, and my offerings I commanded for my dwelling? Now, now here's the key principle, and I want to get you this before we finish. He says, verse 29, and you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise your house and your house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it for me. Here's a second use, honor. For those who honor me, I will honor, third use. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now, in this chapter, real quick, watch this, ready? Chapter 2, verse 8, in Hannah's song, she says that God is going to give glory. It's the Hebrew word kabod. And the word it means God's glory. It also can mean weightiness, something of value because of its weight. And that's how they measured things. That's why they're just scales and unjust scales because they would weigh things and that would determine its value by its weight. It also, believe it or not, talks about, it, it also refers to someone's physical weight. 
And I tell you that to say this to you. See, this is how God does the reversal in Eli's life. The Bible says because he and his sons ate all the meat and took things that only should have been offered to God, took the sacrifices with him, the Bible says, and here's the word, they fatted themselves on them. They made themselves fattened. And it's the word kabod. It means heavy. And the Bible says the second episode, when he's sitting by the, t- and see, Israel has gone out against the Philistines. They brought the ark out there. But like Eli, they had become very, very proud. They thought that they could use God as a four-leaf clover, take him out there. They didn't have to obey him. They didn't have to have godly leaders, right? And they go out there and they think that they can just take God out there and use him. And they find out the hard way, and so does the Philistines later, that you can't, that that's arrogant, and you can't just treat God like that. But here's the thing. See, Eli, he didn't do the taking of the meat, but his sons gave it to him, and the Bible says they fattened themselves. He didn't do it, but he took part in it. And he also honored his sons. His sons were being immoral, and instead of making them not be priests anymore, right, because of their constant, continual immorality, he let it go. He didn't confront them about it. See, he, he kabod, he honored them. He gave them weight when they didn't deserve weight. So he took weight that he shouldn't have had when he ate the stuff that wasn't for him. He gave weight to his sons who didn't deserve it because they were men, worthless men. And the Bible says that God says, if you don't honor me, you don't cause, you don't think I'm heavy in your life, I'm not gonna give you any weight. Now, here's the ironic thing. He's sitting in chapter four and verse 18, look at it. He's sitting in the gate. They bring back the news that the ark has been taken and both of his sons have died in battle. And the Bible says that he falls off the chair backwards. It says he falls off the chair backwards. See, here's the description of Eli. He's very, very heavy and he's very, very old. That's the description of him, right? And secondly, here is the description of his death. He falls over backwards and breaks his neck. The only time the word broken is used in chapter 2 and 4, 4 and 10 in Hannah's song about how God is going to break God's enemies and exalt the humble. And the only other time is in 4.18 when Eli's neck is broken because he has exalted himself. He has made himself proud. He has glorified himself. He has caboted himself. He's made himself heavy. And in turn, he's made God lightweight. And Eli dies and falls over, breaks his neck. You know why? Because he was too heavy. And here's the story. What he had made himself out to be ended up killing him. And that's exactly, can I say to you, what pride does to you. Now, the the verb is also used, five, chapter 5, verses 6 and 11, about the Philistines. And God says his hand was heavy on them. See, they took God's ark and thought they could control him too, like, like Israel did. And that God's heavy, his hand was kabod on them. And they understood, see, heaviness comes in your life in wrong ways. And eventually in chapter 6 and verse 5, it's used again. And it says, they glorified God, <coughs> excuse me, and gave the ark back. It's crazy. Sometimes... Godless people understand the weight of God more than God's people do, right? We all can take a lesson on that, including ourselves, right? But here's the thing. The story wants you to ask yourself this. Who is heavy in your life? 
What do you really honor? Heavy, glory, honor, it's all the same word. It's kabod. It's kabod. And here's what you have to ask yourself. When you don't tell yourself, see, when I don't honor God, when he's not the heaviest, the most valuable, the most weighty thing in my life, see, I'm not just doing something a little wrong. Here's what he says. Eli, you have despised me. Verse 29, chapter 2. You've despised me. You've scorned me. You've made me insignificant. You've made me small. You've made me little in, my, in your life. And see, see listen, ask yourself, is there peop, are there people, my, see, he did that with his children. See, there are parents who honor God, but they honor their children more. They honor children more because their children get what they want. And God, their whole world revolves around their children. And God says, see, when you put your sons and you put more weight on your children and how they live and what they want to do than you do me and their involvement with me, God says, you despise me. You're making your children elevated in their weight above me. Eli not only did that with his sons, but he did it with himself. See, Eli was literally heavy, which was a picture of how lightweight God was because he had made himself so heavy, literally and spiritually. See, one of the signs of pride in your life is that when you're heavier than God, when you're weightier than him, that your decisions are what you do and if you come to services and if you're going to do this with your money and if you're going to serve God and, and what your priorities are going to be and what you're, what's most important to you. See, if it's not weighted by God, we let him down. We despise him. We let it go. And you know how the story ends? Eli has a, a daughter-in-law, and when the news comes back, he gets, falls over, he falls, and he dies. She's having a baby, and, she does, and the news is the baby's going to make it, but she's going to die. And you know what they name the little boy? Listen, you, know, you heard this word before? Ik kabod. Kabod. What's kabod tonight? Heavy. You know what ik is? It's a prefix in Hebrew. None. In other words, the glory is gone. I mean, his whole lineage of his whole priesthood and his family line, it's a dead deal. Ichabod. See, that's ultimately, can I warn everyone tonight, including myself, you know what? That's what happens when pride instead of humility controls our life. When God, something other than God becomes honorable and weighty and more valuable than anything else, when it's not God, you know what happens? I would hate it to ever see that God would write Ichabod over Faith Baptist Church. I would ever, I hated to see that God would write it over my life or my family or your life or your family, that he would Ichabod, that the glory, the weightiness of God is gone. Can I tell you what drives God away and makes him weightless? is pride. When we think that we can run the show, that we think that we know better than God, that we think that we can make the choices without you know, going to him and seeking his face, when we think that we can live our life apart from his word, and that when we need him, he'll just pull him out like the ark and put him in place, and he'll do his magic for us. See, when we get that attitude, we're no better than the Philistines. And the first lesson we learn as Hannah's foundational hermeneutic is, it's lived out in Eli's life that if you are proud and you are arrogant and you think that you can use God and that you're on top and you call the shots, see, what does Proverbs say? Let me close. Proverbs 16, 18. 
Pride goeth before, say it with me, and a haughty spirit before a, a fall. Eli, he personifies that verse. Let's not, let, let's not let God write Ichabod on us. Let's not let God write Ichabod on my family, my marriage, or yours. Let's live out the weightiness of God this week, right? Let's pray. Father, you truly are the heavy one. You are most valuable, most important, most weighty, most honorable God. That never changes, but our decision to live it out does. Please have mercy and forgive us for living out as if somehow you are weightless, that your authority is not compelling, and that your word is not disturbing to us and changing us. For God, forgive us for our pride in thinking that we can use you when we want to. Father, you'll never be treated that way. As Tozer said, you're not a utilitarian God. Help us, Lord. Help us to see your glory, your kabod. Be weighty in all of our decisions, small and great this week. Help us to do that the more because we've had this story told to us tonight. May the word of God be deeply embedded in our heart that you might be kabod in our church and in our lives and get the glory that you alone deserve. For it's through Jesus we ask it. Amen.